What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Welcome to the campfire, the only place where friends and strangers alike sit down and tell tales in truth or fiction in exchange of my blessing of their safe travels. Allow me to relight the fire while you relax and listen. Make your mind wander about the reality we live in. The story I'm about to tell you is from a traveler named Jack Sim. He called this experience. They paid me $5,000 to go through hell. Please, allow me to tell you his tale. It was the advertisement's outright simplicity that caught my attention. Revolutionize science. Earn $5,000. Call us now. I wish I could say I didn't know why I called them. I wish I could say it was some act of God or deception that drove me into their waiting arms. But that would be a lie. The truth is I called them because I needed the money. Because I had gotten laid off at the publishing company I worked at and I was having trouble finding steady work. Because I was months behind on rent and facing my second eviction notice. Because I didn't want to be a failure. I called them for selfish reasons. Who are they? I'm not exactly sure. In retrospect, the obvious obfuscation of their identity should have been a red flag to me. But at the time, their request seemed too interesting. Their reward too vital for me to risk losing the chance to help them. My best guess is that they're a group of private researchers that are funded by some super corporation. They must be. Otherwise, there was no way they would have been able to pay for the machine. They showed me the machine the first time I met with them. It was kept in a cavernous room in the basement of a five-story office building. It was a work in progress at that time. They were still connecting pipes and soldering wires. But even in an unfinished state, it looked truly magnificent. Have you ever heard of the sensory deprivation chamber? I had. In fact, I had actually been inside one before, when I was in college. Back then, I was on a real hippy-dippy spiritual journey. You know, meditating a lot experimenting with psychedelic drugs, primarily magic mushrooms. At some point along that journey, I felt motivated to spend an hour of my life inside a sensory deprivation chamber at a local spa. Your standard sensory deprivation chamber is a large metal tank filled with about a foot of salt water. You step in and float in the water. Then someone closes off the tank so it's completely dark. With your vision obscured and your body suspended in the water, it's supposed to feel like you no longer have your two primary senses. Depending on who you ask, this is supposed to be relaxing. Enhance your creative process. Allow you to reach higher consciousness, hallucinate, or maybe gain magic powers. My experience with the chamber in college was fairly lackluster. I remember that the water was too frigid and the salt made my skin itch. It was difficult to concentrate on meditating or channeling my inner chakra or whatever the spa had promised. Truthfully, I did always wonder what it would have been like to get in one of those things while tripping on some magic mushrooms. But I never had the opportunity. This sensory deprivation chamber didn't look anything like the one I used in college. This chamber looked like a vivisected suit of medieval armor strewn across a large metal table. Thousands of tubes and wires connected to the metal body, which was about three times larger than my own body. 
The head or helmet of the chamber was colossal and round with a big brass pipe running out of its crown into the tiled floor beneath it. On the walls surrounding the chamber were 50 or 60 computer screens, 20 or so server boxes, and various iterations of medical equipment that I couldn't name if I tried. It dawns on me now that the utility bills and computers alone for the machine must have been many tens of times higher than the measly $5,000 they offered me. Not to mention the salaries of the dozens of lab coat-clad scientists manning those computer screens. Again, perhaps this should have raised alarm bells, but I ignored it with the focused ignorance of a man who was on the brink of homelessness. The man who showed me the machine told me his name was Dr. Monison. He was a wrinkled, balding man with a clean shave and focused eyes of blue. When I saw him, he was always clad in blue scrubs and a clean white lab coat. Dr. Monison was the primary liaison for my involvement in this project. He explained the machine's purpose, brought me the necessary waivers, and answered all my questions. Questions like, so what exactly am I supposed to do? We want you to remain in our sensory deprivation chamber for three days. I'm sure my expression betrayed my sense of shock. Three days. Is that, I mean will, will that kill me? You probably would still be alive after three days in pure isolation. Though you would likely become gravely ill and suffering from immense dehydration. Regardless, the machine will hydrate, feed, and otherwise sustain you during the experiment. So there is no risk of bodily harm. Dr. Monison went on to explain how the machine worked. In your standard deprivation chamber, the occupant is deprived of their sense of sight, feeling, and, to a lesser extent, hearing. This deprivation, this process of shutting the outside world out from the occupant's mind, decreases the burden on their brain. Thus, the occupant's mind is free to wander more freely, free to think more creatively, to undergo a deeper state of thinking, to meditate, and so on. But there is a problem with standard sensory deprivation chambers. Although the brain is freed from most external stimuli, the visual and auditory, the brain will continue to be burdened by internal stimuli. That is to say that the brain is still very aware of its own carrier, the human body. The brain will still react to the hunger and thirst of the vessel that carries it. It will still process both the need to and the action of urination and defecation. These internal interruptions go on and on, but the point is that standard sensory deprivation chambers cannot truly be said to deprive the occupant of their senses. This machine is not your standard sensory deprivation chamber. Even a cursory glance at the machine made clear what the doctor meant. Then inside of the exoskeleton portion of the machine is lined with a soft rubber that will acclimate to maintain the exact temperature of human skin. The tubes and wires control and regulate a wide variety of bodily functions. Through these tubes, the body is automatically fed and hydrated. The unsavory functions of the body are handled with a catheter and another series of tubes. A respirator automates breathing and regulates saliva production. Even the body's natural sense of touch is completely removed while in the machine. This IV cord injects a numbing solution into the bloodstream that completely shuts off all feeling. The numbing agent is the most critical asset of our sensory deprivation process. The list went on and on. It became clear that they had truly accounted for everything. Even for me, I was one of the hundreds of applicants to be part of the experiment. For the first time in my life, I was the first round draft pick. The scientists explained to me that I had been chosen for three reasons. 
Number one, I had no prior history of mental or physical illness that would make my experience in the chamber subject to intervening variables. Their words, not mine. Number two, my height and weight were close matches for the machine's original shape. Although the legs will have to be lengthened ever so slightly, you are by far the closest match to our initial design. And number three, the most critical, there was nothing happening outside of that chamber that would lead to early termination of the experiment. I had no significant other, no job, no living family members, not even a houseplant to take care of. They could breathe easy knowing that I would remain peacefully within their contraption for the entire length of the experiment. Number three was important to the scientists. They had specifically designed the machine to allow for three full days of isolation. If the machine's process had to be interrupted early, it would take them a month to reset the machine and run the experiment again. Unfortunately, reason number three also meant there was nobody to come looking for me. The intake process was long and detailed. I signed what felt like hundreds of liability waivers. I listened to a warning after warning about the potential side effects. Although it is apparent that you have a clean bill of health, you should be aware the isolation process may be taxing on you. Our preliminary research suggests that disassociation, audio and visual hallucinations, depression, time dilation, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, and other neuroses are potential effects. However, we believe such effects to be unlikely. They had given me several weeks to prepare for the experiment. My only requirement during that time was that I didn't substantially change my body weight or somehow develop bipolar disorder. Somehow, I managed. I spent those few weeks living normally, watching movies, applying for jobs, getting rejected for those jobs, and reading a few books. When the day came, I was nervous despite Dr. Monason's efforts to prepare me. The process will come in stages. At first, you may endure a mild state of stress. We anticipate that soon after, you will drift into a moderate state of euphoria for the remainder of the process. You will be signaled a few minutes before the experiment is over by a short audio cue. This way, you will emerge from your state of sensory deprivation slowly and be able to reacclimate without any risk of shock. He played the audio cue for me, which was a short musical clip of bells ringing. Then, with little ceremony or deliberation, I was asked to remove my clothing and climb inside the machine. As I lay down inside the exoskeleton, I felt the warm rubber against my bare skin. Even with the chamber still open, I was confined on all sides by the metal shell of the machine. Slowly, the researchers began to attach a score of medical devices to my body. I felt strangely calm through every prick of an IV and uncomfortable insertion of a tube. But, as a respirator was placed on my face, I began to feel a foreboding sense of unease. As I felt my body being constricted and held in place, a single thought filled my mind. Oh God, what have I done? The researchers pushed the helmet of the exoskeleton inward on either side of my head, sealing off my ears. The world went quiet. A bead of sweat began to trickle down my sides. Then I heard a voice, seemingly broadcast from inside my own head. Hello, this is Dr. Monesson. I am speaking to you via a small speaker contained within the helmet of the exoskeleton. Your vital signs indicate that you are beginning to panic. This is to be expected. Please do your best to relax while we finish preparing you. I promise that the process will become pleasurable soon enough. Somehow telling me to relax just made me more anxious. Before I could react, 
I felt the machine close around my body. Already the numbing agent that was being piped into my bloodstream was starting to take away control of my extremities. I tried to push against the machine but found that my arms wouldn't budge. I tried to scream but the respirator held my tongue firmly in place. I was unable to move, unable to do anything. Except for watch. I could still watch as researchers scrambled around me to check vitals and prepare the exoskeleton to finish closing. I could still watch as a giant analog timer appeared on a TV screen above me and began to broadcast a time. One until deprivation begins. I tried again to scream. I tried again to plead to be let out. I found myself unable to feel any part of my body. I strained my eyes to try and get someone's attention, but no one seemed to be looking at me. 30 until deprivation begins. Had my tear ducts been operating, I would have begun crying. Without anything else to do, I began to pray that this was a bad dream. To pray that I was home in bed and not in this chamber. Oh, five until deprivation begins. The last thing I saw was the face of Dr. Monison leaning over me, waving to me, saying something I couldn't quite understand closing the exoskeleton's face over my O. Zero until deprivation begins, and then everything went dark. If I had been in control of my own breathing, I would have begun hyperventilating immediately. I had never felt such a profound sense of darkness as in that moment. Unable to see even my own body, it was as if I had been extinguished from existence. My eyes swam in every direction in search of a single iota of light, but found none. After a moment's consideration, I realized that I had now been in the machine for some time. I had no reference point for exactly how long. Without outside stimuli of any kind, my only mechanism of telling time was by counting individual seconds in my head. $5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up and I've already made around two, three hundred dollars You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earned from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code GAME to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code GAME for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code GAME for a 25 cents per gallon bonus. Yet time ticked on. I found myself alternating between obsessing about my imprisonment and finding myself adrift in my thoughts. I began to consider the state of my life, my recent unemployment, my lack of close friends. I felt a wave of depression come over me. Was my life really so meaningless that I could be snuffed out of existence for three days and no one could possibly care? I pondered the source of my isolation. I looked back to times I could have tried harder at my job. Images of friendships that I had let fall apart out of introversion and stagnation cascaded through my mind. And then I came across a thought in my head that, were my body not numb to the point of immobility, would have made me burst out into laughter. I felt lonely. Well, of course, I felt lonely. I was, at that moment, the most alone human being there had ever been. Surely there were researchers only a few feet from my terrestrial body. But my mind had been isolated completely. I was as alone as someone could be. I let my mind continue to wander, 
It felt as though I had been in the chamber for hours at this point. Although I had planned to spend this time planning some sort of creative endeavor. The great American novel, perhaps, I found my mind repeatedly coming back to my current predicament. Obsessively, I thought about my body and the container that currently housed it. The numbing medicine must have been truly quite something. I couldn't feel the slightest wisp of breath passing through my nasal cavities or the rumble of my stomach. It was then that a pair of intertwining thoughts collided in my mind. Could I be dead? No, of course not. That would be ridiculous. I knew how I had ended up here. I knew that I had signed up to engage in an experiment that would put me in this exact predicament. But I must admit, I no longer felt very alive. Without my body or the surrounding world as a reference point, it felt as though I had no assurance that I still existed. My thoughts began dueling with one another. Surely I'm not dead. This is exactly what the experiment was supposed to do. If you're not dead, then why can't you feel anything? Why can't you feel your breath or saliva or anything? But I know I'm not dead because I'm thinking right now. What does that mean? You know, I think, therefore I am. I think, therefore I am. A smarter man could have told you who said that. But I was left with just the proclamation from an unknown source as the only assurance that I was alive. As long as I was thinking, I was still alive. I began to picture myself floating through a void in space. The image was clear in front of my eyes. My body lay flat, my arms stiff, as I rocketed past stars and unfamiliar planets. I watched my body weave past asteroids and through planetary rings. I felt the warmth of the sun on my body and the cold ice of the frozen planets on my skin. Except I didn't really feel those things. I had to remind myself of that. I was starting to imagine feelings that weren't really there. I wasn't sure how much I should try to avoid these feelings or just embrace them for the duration of the experiment. Just another question to ponder, I suppose. There came a time when I realized that I had been in sensory deprivation for a long time. Since I had not been counting, it was impossible to know how long. It felt like it had been days already. Had it been days already, that was a worrying thought. In a timeless void, three days stretched on like an endless millennium. They had assured me that I would only be inside the machine for three days. But how could I know for sure? Once I was inside, I had no way of getting out. They could keep me for as long as they wanted to. Maybe that was their plan all along. How could they get away with that? Who knows what all those liability waivers I signed said. I stopped reading them after the third or fourth one. Maybe I agreed to this. You're being crazy. I don't know if I'm being crazy or not. I don't know how long I've been in here. So count. That was right. I had one way to tell how long I had been inside the machine. Counting. One, two, three, four, five, and on and on. I counted to 60. That was a minute. And then I counted another minute. And another and another and another. I just kept going and going. I never lost focus on the task at hand. Then I hit 1,000 minutes. Technically, 1,000 minutes was only a little more than 16 and a half hours. Certainly not the three-day period I was supposed to be inside the machine. But that was 16 and a half hours on top of all the time I had already spent thinking about my life and dreaming about floating through space. Surely I had spent longer thinking to myself than I had counted. I tried to guess how long I had been in the machine. It felt like it had been more than three days. I just kept trying to tell myself that I would be let out of the machine soon. I let my mind drift off again. 
My body was once again floating through space. I watched it drift farther and farther out into an endless void of darkness. The planets and suns shrunk into oblivion until I was truly, deeply alone. In the black abyss, a creeping feeling of cold began to set in. Its biting sting spread up my legs and torso to my face. My naked skin turned a pale blue and began to harden into a crystalline husk. As my body drifted farther into darkness, I watched the surface of my stomach crack and chip. Slowly, chunks of my body began to break off and float into the darkness. With each expelled scrap of flesh, a new wave of pain cascaded through my body. I found myself trying to grab onto my frozen body and put it back together. But my arms and legs were so cold that I could not budge. I tried to scream, but my tongue had swelled so large that it filled my crumbling, frigid mouth. All at once, my body exploded into an array of jagged, bloody shards of ice. The pain was indescribable. Then I was, again, alone in the darkness. Bodiless, without lungs to expel the panicked breaths I was so desperate to create. I had to keep telling myself, it wasn't real. I'm still alive. My body is still here, somewhere. But God, didn't it feel real? But it wasn't real. Real or not, didn't it hurt? Yes. Are you scared? Yes. Wait. Do you hear that? I listened through ears that were a million miles away. A voice, not mine own, burst into my head. Its bristly accent was familiar. Hello, this is Dr. Monesson. I'm contacting you again via the small speakers contained within the helmet of the exoskeleton. I am proud to announce that you have successfully completed three days within the machine. I felt my alarm melt quickly into relief. I tried to smile, to little avail. At this juncture, we would like to update you on the status of our experiment. The data we're getting from your brain scans is proving incredibly useful. The medical implications are numerous. We have contacted our institutional review board and obtained permission to extend the experiment indefinitely. This is, of course, for the liability waivers that you've signed previously. The machine should be able to keep you alive for a few more weeks until your body becomes unable to support it any further. Do not worry. $5,000 will nonetheless be credited into your account. Thank you for your contribution. Your sacrifice will save lives. I tried to scream. I tried to flail my arms in protest and push back against the doctor's words. But my screams were silent and my arms were no longer part of me. I felt a deep, echoing hole of dread grow inside me. Yet I would never truly feel anything again. I would die in this chamber. It would take days, and those days would feel like months, and those months would be torture. I again saw myself floating in immeasurable darkness. There were no stars or planets. There was only my body, unequivocally alone, arguably alive, but inevitably dead. I stopped counting the seconds and just let myself float. My mind wandered again, this time for much longer. I dreamt of my childhood and of a future I would never get to lead. I made an imaginary bucket list and felt remorse for the boxes I had not yet checked. I held conversations in my head between old friends and lovers. And sometimes, I didn't think at all. Sometimes I disappeared from existence altogether. But then I felt it. I felt something. I couldn't tell what it was at first. It had been so long since I felt something that I couldn't tell if I was imagining it or not. It was my big toe. My big toe on my right foot. Somehow, someway, it still had a feeling. Not a lot of feeling. It felt like when you sit on your hand and it becomes almost 
but not quite numb. Like it was being massaged by a set of pins and needles. I moved the toe around, the little that I could, to try to understand how this feeling had come back. Then I felt it, a tiny prick. The slightest droplet of pain against my big toe. Something sharp. And for needle. It must have become dislodged somehow. Maybe one of those lab coat wearing schmucks tripped over it or something. All I knew was that I could feel again. I suddenly felt like I had been born again. Like I had died and risen from the ashes. This needle must have been one of the needles that were supposed to deliver the numbing chemical into my body. Somehow, it got dislodged and now I had just a little feeling in my toe. Unfortunately, my big toe was hardly the vestige of my body most suited to orchestrate my grand escape. But still, I felt immeasurable happiness. Because I had a secret weapon on my side. Time. There's an old adage that goes if you give a monkey a typewriter and infinite time. He will eventually write the complete works of Shakespeare. Similarly, with a partially numb big toe and infinite time to think. I could craft my grand escape. My big toe was too weak to push open the exoskeleton. Despite my training, I was unable to reach any other cords to pull them out. All I could reach was the IV needle that had already been pulled out. And with that IV needle, I hatched my plan. I scraped my toe across it. It stung, but I knew it would do the trick. I knew that I had forced those stupid scientists' hands. My efforts had made a cut in my toe skin. And now I knew I was going to be okay. They only had two options. Let me bleed out, in which case I would at least be free from this hell. Or let me out of the chamber, at least long enough to reattach the IV. Either way, my plan was foolproof. Either way, I was going to be free, at least for a moment. It only took them a few minutes to notice what I had done. This is Dr. Monason again, communicating via the tiny speaker in the helmet of the exoskeleton. It seems you have managed to injure yourself inside the exoskeleton. After some discussion, we have elected to pause the experiment and correct the error. Stand by, the exoskeleton will be opening shortly. The light that soon flooded my eyes all but blinded me. As the machine opened, I bathed in the sounds of its electronic funks and whirs, and the conversation of the men around me. The quick tug as needles and tubes were removed from me felt better than any touch I had ever experienced. They let me out. I was free. My body was numb for hours. The medicine prevented me from making any movements, at all. During that time, the scientists left me in the exoskeleton as they went over data and bandaged my big toe. I tried to listen to everything they were saying but found myself unable to concentrate. The bright lights above me burned my eyes, which had grown accustomed to perfect darkness. As the drugs slowly left my body, a dull ache developed in my joints. After a while, my body was hauled out of the exoskeleton by a team of lab coats. I felt a dressing gown slip on over my head. I was plopped into a wheelchair. Still unable to move, I listened to the roll of metal wheels as they pushed that chair deeper and deeper into their lab. Explain again about when you were floating through space. What was the sensation like? Please let me go. I can't. You know that. The data we were getting from you is too important. Lives are at stake. And besides that, we can't risk you going to the police. You will be going back in the machine. This conversation had been going on for about an hour in the tiny interrogation room set up somewhere in the research group's massive underground lab. Although I had regained enough feeling to speak, 
I still found movement quite difficult. It was clear that as soon as I outlived my usefulness to the lab coats I was going to be placed back inside the machine until my bodily demise. The data that the scientists had gained so far was so useful that they had no problem holding me against my will. As I sat in that tiny metal room, tied to a cold folding chair, clad only in a thin dressing gown, I considered my fate. For $5,000 I had sold away the rest of my life. My only respite now was that I could delay going back in the machine for as long as I resisted Dr. Monison's questioning. But I knew I was just delaying the inevitable. I stared down at my big toe, now wrapped in a bandage. Somehow it had not dawned on me that, even if I got out of the machine, the scientists were unlikely to let me out of the building alive. Not after they decided to imprison me until I died. Anyway, what if I don't answer the questions? The data we intend to receive from those questions is critical and could save lives. But if we cannot elicit it, then the information received from the exoskeleton will be sufficient. If you won't answer, we will return you to the machine now. So it didn't matter. I was already doomed. I might as well delay for as long as I could. Fine. Ask me what you want to ask me. I answered hundreds of questions, most of them multiple times. It took hours. The scientists barely listened to my words. There was a recorder placed in the room with me. I'm sure someone would dig through my answers later. But for now, the conversation seemed to be mostly for posterity's sake. At some point, though, I realized something. The drugs had completely left my body. I could, theoretically, move again. For now, I was tied to a chair. But they couldn't keep me tied up if they wanted me to go back into the machine. And from that thought, I came up with a plan. I knew I would only have a few seconds. I knew I couldn't run immediately, or they would catch me. I would have to convince them I was resigned to my fate. When the questioning concluded, I found myself being hauled back into the chamber containing the exoskeleton. Perhaps assuming that I would flee otherwise. The scientists kept me tied up during transit. But the ties came off when it was time to put me in the machine. They stripped off my nightgown and lifted me inside the machine. I let my body go limp as they did, feigning the same numbness that had, until recently, restricted my movement. As I laid down in the rubber interior of the exoskeleton, Dr. Monason spoke to me through a loudspeaker in the ceiling. I am sorry we have to part again. Your answers will be invaluable for future research. I know it may seem now like we are villains, but the research we're obtaining is invaluable. It will save lives someday. You are doing a valuable service to the world. As his speech ended, his researchers again approached to fill my body with needles and tubes. I was eager to make my escape, but I held tight. They would have to believe I was unable to move. I felt pinpricks in my right arm. I was already being loaded up with the numbing agent. My time was going to be short. As some of the lab coats approached me on my left side to insert another IV, I launched myself upward so I was standing inside the machine. Surprised by my sudden motion, the scientists on my left recoiled. I felt a sharp pain in my right arm as the IVs and tubes held tight against the strain of my sudden motion. The room exploded into a panic. Men rushed at me from all sides. I felt my body moving as if of its own volition. My left arm reached towards my right and ripped a series of cords and needles out of my body. Blood sprayed onto the machine. My right arm fell loosely to my side. I propelled myself out of the machine and onto the floor, naked as the day I was born. 
The numbing agent had disabled my right arm, but most of my body was fine. I sprinted towards the door through which I had entered the lab, what now seemed like a millennium ago. I did not dare turn back to see if I was being chased. All I could do was run. As I pushed the door open, I saw a long hallway that led to a set of alternating staircases. Staircases that I had walked up and down several times while preparing for the experiment. Stairs that I had always assumed I would one day walk up for the last time. I pushed my body as hard as I could. I ran with my right arm dangling limply beside me until I reached the stairs. Behind me, the angered yells of men and the thud of their footsteps remained consistent. I knew that if they caught me, it was game over. When I reached the stairs, I practically jumped up the entire first flight. As I turned to climb the next flight, I saw that only two men had kept pace with me. Suddenly, I was filled with hope. Perhaps I could outrun them all. Then I would go to the police and get the chance to put this whole operation under the microscope. As soon as I got to the top of that second flight of stairs and through the exit doors, I would be free. My hopes were dashed as soon as I reached the top of the stairs. At least 15 men guarded the building's exit. Clearly, my escape had been a contingency for which the facility was prepared. As the men approached behind me and in front of me, I knew there was only one way I could go. The alternating staircases continued past the first floor, all the way up to the roof. I kept running, staircase after staircase. My aching body protested each step. My dead arm banged against stair railings and walls as I made my way up those stairs. The sounds of angry men filled my ears as I took step after step after step. Soon I was on the last staircase. A ladder, hanging from the ceiling, led up to a hatch on the roof of the building. This was it. I was going to see the outside world again. I didn't know where I was going to go once I got up there. But I knew I was free. I jumped onto the ladder and pulled myself up about six feet into the air. When I reached the top, I pushed on the hatch. It was heavy and barely budged. I strained against the hatch for a moment, then felt a tight grip on my ankle. One of the men had caught up. He had wrapped his cold hand around my leg and was beginning to yank me off the ladder. I turned slightly and saw it was Dr. Monesson. His eyes were red and as large as saucers. It was like looking into the eyes of the devil himself. I reacted purely out of instinct. My grip on the ladder tightened and I swung my free foot at the doctor's face. As my heel collided with his jaw, sending teeth and blood flying in all directions, I couldn't help but smile at the feeling. It hurt like you wouldn't believe it, but it felt damned good to feel something. Dr. Monison relaxed his grip. I pushed upwards again and the hatch gave way. I clambered upwards onto the flat roof of the building. A thin layer of gravel covered the rooftop. The sharp stones poked at my bare feet, but I kept moving. I ran to the edge of the roof and looked out into the city. A beautiful horizon of skyscrapers and stars filled my view. I felt the cold breeze against my bare skin. The voices of the men behind me barely registered as I climbed onto the edge of the roof. I must have been a sight to the people walking by on the sidewalk below. A naked man standing on the edge of a building staring at the horizon as if he had never seen one before. Please come down from there. You don't have to go back to the machine. We just need you to come down. It was Dr. Monison again. His voice was hard to understand now that he was short a few teeth. I turned away from the horizon to look at him. He was surrounded on all sides by other men in lab coats. I knew at that moment that I had no real choices left. 
Could I believe Dr. Monason that he wouldn't put me back in the machine? Probably not, but I had no chance to escape at this point. There were too many of them for me to get away. Just as one of the researchers reached out to grab me, I took a step backward. As my body tumbled down to the earth below, I found myself laughing. It was just like when I was in the machine. My body was floating once again. The cold air numbed my body and, once again, I couldn't feel a thing. Just before I struck the ground, I heard the sound of church bells ringing out. Hallelujah. I figured I must be on my way to heaven. No heaven came. Instead, I found myself in complete darkness. Feeling nothing, seeing nothing, simply ruminating on my previous actions. Is this what death is like? In answer to my question, I heard a familiar voice. Hello, this is Dr. Monison. I am speaking to you once again via a small speaker contained within the helmet of the exoskeleton. You have successfully completed your three days within the exoskeleton. Had I not still been pumped full of numbing drugs, I would have wept. We are currently in the process of opening the machine. At that point, we will perform a physical assessment. I'm sure you are anxious to leave. I can assure you we will move as quickly as possible to make that happen. Thank you so much for your assistance with this project. It has been invaluable. Three days. I had been in that machine for exactly three days. It didn't click for me until they were pulling me out of the machine. There was no bandage on my big toe, no needle near my foot on which I could have cut myself. The facility was nothing but accommodating in the hours after the experiment terminated. They provided me with a comfortable place to rest while the remainder of the drugs left my system. Although they asked questions about my experience, they were not hostile when I refused to speak. The researchers were happy to answer my questions about the experience, happy to tell me it was all in my head. In the days following the experiment, Dr. Monison made sure that I was provided with any mental health resources that I requested. He connected me with a therapist that I have been seeing for several weeks. The therapist has prescribed me an antidepressant, which I take twice a day. I have returned to my normal life. My rent is paid. I'm seeing someone new. I got a new job at another book publishing company. It's like all my fantasies have come true. But no matter how long I talk to the therapist and no matter how many pills I take, I can't get the machine out of my head. I can't stop thinking about how those three days seem to extend indefinitely. But you're out of the machine. Your three days are up. Yes, but... But what? I was out of the machine once before. But that wasn't real. But it felt real. Does this feel real? I don't know anymore. Could three days feel? Even longer. Could I imagine a therapist? A job? A better life? I don't know. Sometimes I close my eyes and I become too afraid to open them because I'm worried that when I do, I will see only darkness. I'm scared I will find myself still floating, motionless amongst those imaginary stars. Now, that was the end of my tale. I hope you enjoyed yourself, listening while escaping the world you live in. That is all for today. Safe travels, and a blessed day. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. 
Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.